Tonight on Huckabee, Senator Mike Lee tackles criminal justice reform. Paul Wellborn defends American manufacturing. And Charlie Daniels stands for veterans. Trey Corley and the Music City Connection. I'm your announcer, Rick Roberts. And now, here's Mike Huckabee. Thank you very much. We're going to have a great time tonight. So glad that you have joined us. Now, let me tell a little story. When my now seven-year-old grandson was five, he looked at me and said, Papa, you're really old, aren't you? <laughs> now, his mother tried to explain that it really wasn't kind to say that. But it was an innocent and, frankly, accurate observation on his part. But let me tell you something. With age comes a frame of reference that I not only celebrate, but I'm grateful for. You see, I'm old enough to remember when at the beginning of each school day, we had a prayer and we said the Pledge of Allegiance and no one took a knee. And had we disrespected the flag, I'm telling you, had we disrespected the flag, we wouldn't have gotten a shoe contract. We'd have gotten a shoe upside our backside is what would have happened. And we prayed again on the way to the lunchroom. And given what we were fed, we really needed that prayer. <laughs> now, the teacher absolutely controlled the classroom. And if we got in trouble at school, we didn't ask our parents for a lawyer. <laughs> Folks, we asked for divine mercy since being in trouble at school meant being in much bigger trouble at home. We didn't know what it meant to be triggered and we'd been laughed out of school if we'd asked for a safe space with puppies, popsicles, and Play-Doh. <laughs> and our restrooms were marked boys and girls, and those were the only options we had. And nobody was confused about which one to use. We said, yes, sir, and no, sir. Yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. Please and thank you. We looked up to cops and soldiers. In fact, most of the playtime we had, we pretended to be cops and soldiers. We played with toy guns, but we knew the difference between make-believe and reality. As early as age five, we had BB guns. By seven or eight, we had pellet guns. And by 10, we had 22 rifles. We were drilled in the fundamentals of firearms. Treat all guns as loaded. Never point at what you don't plan to shoot. Never shoot at what you don't plan to kill. And never kill what you aren't planning to eat. So by high school, we kept higher powered rifles in plain view in our vehicles on the school parking lot for either hunting before school or immediately after. It never occurred to any of us to shoot up the school. By the way, we knew the moon landing was truly an American event and we celebrated the heck out of it. Now many of us grew up poor, but proud. We didn't resent what other kids had and we didn't think anybody owed us something for nothing. We were told if we wanted something, work for it. And if we didn't work for it, we must not have really wanted it. And by the way, if we use bad words, we ate soap for dinner. <laughs> uh, we not only went to church, we behaved in church, or we would experience just a little taste of hell right there in front of God and everyone. <laughs> oh yeah, we got spankings, or whoopings as we call them. And we got them from our parents, our teachers, the principal of the school, even by neighbors and relatives who filled in for our parents when they weren't around. And by the way, it was kids born the same year as me, guys like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs who gave us the personal computer and the iPhone. So I just wanted to say my grandson was right. I'm old. But our generation is leaving behind the greatest growth of entrepreneurial success and job creation in history and technology that changed the world. We ushered in greater opportunities for women and minorities than at any time in history, and we improved the standard of living for billions of people around the world. So to my grandson and the kids his age, and those who may be a little older, I simply say, you're welcome. Now what are you guys gonna be remembered for when you get old?
Well, many students aren't taught that America was meant to be a nation of limited government and individual rights, which makes them prey to bad ideas like socialism. Well, one good antidote to that is the new book, Written Out of History, The Forgotten Founders Who Fought Big Government. Please welcome the author and a great guy, Utah Senator Mike Lee. I want to get right to the big news of this week, which is the Kavanaugh hearings and the unexpected intrusion of uh, uh, the lady who says that 36 years ago as a high school student, um, he attacked her. As a senator, uh, as a male, how do you approach this, still trying to get this uh, carried through, but making sure that everything is on the up and up? Well, that's why we're having hearings this coming Monday, so that we can hear from the accuser and also hear from the accused. We want to make sure that the due process rights of both the accuser and the accused are respected in this process. We're wanting to make sure that we do it all methodically and carefully. And while we wish we had had a chance to do it earlier, we take these things as they arise, and we're going to look into it thoroughly. In all honesty, does it not bother you that if Senator Feinstein had this information in July, that she didn't bring it forth during the time that the hearings were going on and the meetings with uh, the senators and Judge Kavanaugh were taking place? How frustrating is that? Uh, tremendously frustrating. And I, I think it was a breach of a collegial duty that she has to us uh, to keep us abreast of information that she had, information that she's apparently had since July 30th. Uh, look, we have a, a process, and that process has been respected up until this point. Uh, we had a special part of the hearing a couple weeks ago that was designed specifically to address anything like this that might have come up. Senator Feinstein didn't even show up to that part of the hearing much less let us know about information that she had apparently received in late July. Let's talk about the book you've written, written out of history, things about our founders that maybe we did not really know. Um, what are some things that most Americans would be surprised to learn about our founders and how they might not have been a part of the, let's just say the fifth grade version of American history? We tend to think of our founding fathers as just fathers, when many of them were mothers. Uh, people like Mum Bet and Mercy Otis Warren, who I discuss in this book. And there are other founders who don't fit into the narrative either. We think of them as just being white and male. Some of them uh, were Native American, uh, like Kanasatego. Kanasatego was an Iroquois Indian chief of the Onondaga tribe. He's the one who taught Benjamin Franklin about the principle of federalism. You know, this idea embedded in the Constitution uh, made clear in the Tenth Amendment that most of the power in our federal system is supposed to remain close to the people at the state and local level. It, this was not something we inherited from the British. This was a uniquely American concept, in fact, a Native American concept. You made a comment in the book that uh, some of the founders didn't originally want to sign the uh, Constitution. Why not? Elbridge Gerry, for example, it was one of only a small handful of uh, founders who were present both at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787 and were present for the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Of that handful, he was the only one uh, who refused to sign the Constitution, the only one of those who had also been present at the signing of the Declaration. The reason he didn't was because he feared that it contained inadequate protections for individual liberties, and he held out for a Bill of Rights. He wanted to make sure that government didn't have too much power. He understood that when big governments, especially a large national government, amasses unrestricted power, it always happens at the expense of individual liberty, and that's bad. I think the founders would be shocked to see how big the federal government has become, how little uh, the states really control things in their own states anymore. They're held hostage by the federal government. I agree with you, Governor. They would be very surprised if they saw what's happening today, where we've we've turned this principle of federalism on its head. Instead of most of the power being close to the people, the state and local level, we've transferred most of it to Washington. Instead of laws within the federal government being made by the people's elected representatives, we've handed that task over to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. In some ways, there's nothing new under the sun. In some ways, what we face today is similar to frustrations that existed at the time of the revolution. We had the American people who grew tired of a large, distant national government that knew no restrictions on its power and that was slow to respond to the needs of the people. Fortunately, today, we don't need a, another revolution because what we have is already a system uh, of governance that's already law of the land. It's in our Constitution. We just have to rediscover it and have to implement it according to the way we vote and the, the way we influence American political discourse. 
Well, Senator, it's uh, a brilliant book. It's one we need. I hope people will get a copy of it and read it, written out of history, the forgotten founders who fought big government. It's something we all need to continue to fighting. Uh, it is a much needed American history lesson. I want to say to our viewers, it's available at Amazon and all the best booksellers across the country. You can also keep up with Senator Mike Lee at lee.senate.gov or on Facebook at Senator Mike Lee. And I hope you will. Don't miss out getting this book. Every American needs to read it. I think you'll love your country and the Constitution a whole lot more. Okay, Rick, I know you're certainly not being written out of anything or forgotten. So why don't you preview what's ahead? Later, meet two men pursuing the dreams of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Then, country music legend Charlie Daniels stands for our veterans and the latest, in case you missed it, humorous headlines. It's all ahead on Huckabee. President Trump's tariffs imposed on the nation of China have been hotly debated since they were applied. Harvard-trained economist and White House trade advisor Peter Navarro states that China's unfair trade practices and theft of intellectual property of American business cost our nation approximately $50 billion a year in damages that China's cheating cost the USA. Our correspondent, Juan Garcia, takes a closer look at China's drive for world economic dominance and one American manufacturer that continues to successfully make products right here and employ Americans. For a generation, China has been using government-subsidized utility rates and weak environmental and safety standards to become the factory to the world. By 2015, China accounted for 28% of global auto production, 41% of all ship production, more than half of refrigerators sold worldwide, 70% of mobile phones, 60% of shoes, and eight out of every 10 air conditioners and computers made on the planet. And much of China's economic dominance has been achieved through aggressive practices that fall outside of global norms and rules of business and trade. Now, state-sponsored intellectual property theft and commercial espionage by China give U.S. companies a greater reason for concern. Estimates of cost of trade secret theft alone range between $180 billion and $540 billion annually. In response to these damaging practices to American business, President Trump has aimed tariffs at Chinese imports to force China to the negotiating table. Some consider these tariffs to be the salvation of U.S. industry. Wellborn Cabinet Incorporated has over 57 years of experience in high-quality cabinetry craftsmanship, and yet they still manage to stand despite the overwhelming challenges from China. American people are the most innovative people, I believe, anywhere. We have 1,500 employees here that we care deeply about. They treat me as a family. We pray for one another. When, when people are in need, uh, everybody seems to have each other's back. On a level playing field, nobody can outrun the spirit of an American manufacturer. From start to finish, we build our own buildings and make our own parts, have our own sawmill. We deliver on our own trucks. We support free trade, but it needs to be fair. Given the extent of China's market-distorting policies and stated intent to dominate world industries, their economic aggression not only threatens families like Wellborn Cabinet Incorporated, but the entire U.S. economy and global innovation as a whole. My next guest created and carried the vision for Wellborn Cabinets Forward from a daydream moment in school to the high-quality products that are made and the talented team that he leads today, all in spite of China's unfair competition. He's joined by his wife, Betty, his son, Stephen. They all help lead their company of over 1,400 employees. Would you please welcome Paul, Betty, and Stephen Wellborn. Great having you guys here. Thank I you, love a great American story, and Wellborn Manufacturing is a great American story. Paul, I understand, did it really start with a daydream? Is that true? Well, somebody said that one time, Governor, but they said I was looking out the window in school when I should have been studying. <laughs> but um, they said I was looking at that, a tree to see what I could make out of it. 
But that's, I don't remember that part of it, but how it really started, I remember my father carried my brother and I out to the job site building homes when I was just kids. And so around, when I was 12 or 13 years old, my brother and I built our first 12-foot kitchen. Is that right? In one of the houses he was building. That's pretty good. And from there, 1,400 employees, you have business in all 50 states. You, you make cabinets for homes. So it's a specialty industry. But you've been hit hard in competition from the way China does business. And I think you would probably say it hadn't been all that fair. But when it comes to uh, China and their trade practices, subsidies, you cannot compete because they're guaranteed to win. And uh, you can't compete against that, Governor. And we're beginning to see more and more of that. And I have watched the furniture business for many years, and when it went out, 120, 140 plants closed, it was, we're getting in that same position now in the cabinet business, and we need to really get these tariffs on, and I applaud the president for what he is doing. Now, a lot of people are unhappy with the president. They say the tariffs are a terrible idea. It's gonna make it more difficult for companies to succeed. But a lot of the manufacturers, like you say, it's the only way to force China to come and play a fair game. You know, absolutely, the, you know, the, the, the tariffs, you know, some people may say they are a problem, but you know, when, you, when you're looking at prices sometimes that it's 40 and 50% under your market, you know, you can't, you can take your labor and material costs completely out of it, and they're still under the market. So what is it that they do that makes it cheating, not just good competition? Governor, I'll give you, for instance, we have a supplier to our industry, the Hardwood Plywood Association, that petitioned our federal government to do an investigation and were just awarded tariffs on their product coming uh, that was being dumped by China. They found it took 200% tariffs and duties to just level the playing field. That's how far the Chinese were dumping. They were providing the raw materials to some of these companies at no charge so they could come and compete and, and dump product into this industry. I don't know if a lot of Americans understand that the long-term goal is if they can put you out of business, then they can raise their prices to more than you ever charge for a cabinet, but they can't do it as long as you're uh, competing. That's right. When they, when they put any Pacific uh, industry out of business, they can raise the prices and move on and uh, start making profits in that, in that product and, and uh, attack another industry, so. One of the things that I saw in the video that Juan did, uh, the employees of the company obviously are, are more than just workers to you, mm -hmm. they're family. Right. And I heard even one of the uh, people say, we pray for each other. We have each other's that's backs. I'm not sure that's what we would hear in a Chinese factory. <laughs> Probably might not be allowed. It had to be a silent prayer, I'm sure. But we have such good people throughout our company, Governor, tell they're so dedicated. And that's what this is about, is keeping jobs for Americans. They've been so dedicated through the years. They stay there till the trailers are loaded. And we have a vast product. And it's not easy to build. But they do a wonderful job, and we have some of the best people in the United States working in our company, and I thank God for them. You know, I think it's so important when I see a company like yours, you've got 1,400 employees, but you don't treat them as if they're just a blob of 1,400 people. Betty, as kind of the matriarch of the family, how important is it to you that the atmosphere of the company is like a family? Why, is that, why does that matter? Well, as a, as a mother and a grandmother and a great-grandmother now, uh, we, we felt the need to have a daycare at our facility. We have 40, 50% women that we employ. So we um, put a, a daycare and so the um, children can stay. We, uh, to keep us physically fit, we put us in a uh, gym. <laughs> so, and then we have a full-time nurse that's on staff and uh, we have a doctor that comes in three days a week. The employees can see the doctor at no cost. We have a cafeteria that uh, provides warm meals. So we, like I said, we like to treat our employees like families because our family works there. And so that's why they are so important to us, yeah. So. It's like your own little town over there. You got all these services. If there was a message you could give to the House, the Senate, to the President, to the federal government, what would your message be, Paul? My message today, where our cabinet business and many other industries is, is level that playing field for us and we'll stay in business and uh, banks and businesses that go out of business when plants shut down will thrive on and we'll have communities that uh, as Americans we can be proud of. There's a lot of people that start getting hurt when an American business closes. But how 
How optimistic are you for the future of American manufacturing? Because we've had presidents recently that said, those jobs are never coming back. We're never going to manufacture again. And I'm concerned because I think we need to be able to make things. Are you optimistic that we can get back to that place where we make things in America? I think if American people understand this situation, that, that if we don't do something and level this playing field, um, I think that things can change and I think the right people can be put into office that will care about our business and our people's jobs. Sometimes uh, people in the front office don't understand how important it is for the people out in the, out in the factories. They have children, they have home payments, house payments, car payments, and they have to take care of their family and feed them. And I think once that's understood in this country, I truly believe this country can certainly turn around because we have the most innovative people in the world. I believe that. I, I think we do too. And I'm so proud of what your company, not only what you do, even more proud of what you represent. You represent a compassionate company that sees its people as its most valuable single resource. I think that's a smart company. I be truly believe it's why you guys have been in business and stayed in business when other people didn't, because they never understood that human capital is the most important capital you have. And Paul, God bless you. I hope you have greater success than ever. I hope well-born cabinets continue to thrive uh, and that it just says that when we build something in America, we build it to last and we build it the right way by the right kind of people. God bless you and thank you for being here. Thank you, Governor. Great Appreciate to have it. you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Let me encourage you to learn more about their amazing company. Just visit wellburn.com. And I hope you research what the president is actually doing to stand for American business and manufacturing so he can create a fair and even playing field in the global marketplace. All right, Rick, we gave you a sheet of paper with all the stuff we have on the show tonight. So if you still have that sheet of paper and haven't lost it, why don't you tell us what we have coming up? Country music's Charlie Daniels is just around the corner and we're headed to our kind of town, Ferndale, California. It's all right here on Huckabee. Well, from robot crabs to natural drug distribution, we've got the stories that might have snuck right by you. But we're not going to let that happen, thanks to a little segment that we called In Case You Missed It. That's right from our Storm Center file. There is a high pressure, and I mean high pressure pattern over Fort Pierce, Florida. It's apparently dealing drugs. The Fort Pierce police stopped a car with the intense smell of marijuana wafting from it. After searching the car, the officer found a bag of pot along with a bag of cocaine in the purse of one of the two passengers, a Ms. Kanisha Posey. When questioning the owner of the purse about the drugs, the police report recorded her answer as follows, and I quote, it's a windy day. It must have flown through the window and into my purse, end quote. With laughable explanations like that, she might be a candidate for a job in the U.S. Senate with Spartacus or even Pocahontas. <laughs> All I can say is, again, wins distributing sellable amounts of drugs in individual baggies. I wonder, is the National Weather Service in on this? Are the cartels worried about nature's competition? You know, I always thought blow was slang for cocaine, not a method of delivering it. By the way, authorities report that Ms. Posey was charged with a felony count for cocaine possession and a misdemeanor for the marijuana. Now, in a related story, it's reported that ducks in that area of Florida have developed a drug problem. Several hundred were recently found standing around the side of a pond acting like a bunch of quack heads. <laughs> Folks, we don't just report these stories. We do write them, I got to tell you. All right. Moving along, from our sci-fi drive-in movie files, a 54-year-old Chinese farmer in northern China had a little time on his hands. So rather than till the soil or milk the cows, he invented a giant robot crab that you can ride. You hear that, American farmers? While you're out there feeding our citizens, China's gotten a jump on us in the development of a giant, rideable robot crab. Mr. Fu Zinlin did this in his spare time back home in Hai He City. 
A leggy device can carry up to 220 pounds. Now, before I get my farming friends angry or my paranoid friends worried about the giant hordes of Chinese farmers descending on America, riding these, be comforted just to know that they don't float. Also, it would probably take an army of Chinese farmers about 100 years just to travel to America at top speed, even if they could create a floating robo-crab bridge to cross the Pacific. And you can basically flee one of these at a leisurely walking place, uh, pace. Now, remembering that inventing is Mr. Zen Lin's hobby, we have no record of his farming prowess. One of my personal disappointments was the robot crab doesn't come with a robo-hammer, butter, and a very large bib. <laughs> Fu has also created the robo-dog and a robo-horse. I wonder, does the guy ever farm? But maybe we understand better why the American farmers are the most efficient and they grow the safest and most proficient crops in all the world, and God bless them for doing it. Folks in the UK had a cow recently, and not a mad one, by the way. It was having a cow over a restaurant all the way in Las Vegas and what they were serving. Jamie Oliver, best known for his British TV series, The Naked Chef, is an advocate for removal of unhealthy food in England. Now, frankly, I think that standing over food naked is not all that healthy. But his focus was recently turned to Las Vegas when people on social media introduced him to a 13-pound monstrosity of a burger called the Belly of the Beast. It is made with beef patties the size of pizzas, cheese, pork belly, tater tots, Cheetos, as well as other items, and a whole lot of love. The creator of this Frankenburger is a joint called Truffles and Bacon. Now, they wanted British critics to know that it was not made to be consumed by a single individual, but rather by a table of six. Folks online have branded the 13-pound gargantuan burger as gruesome, unhealthy, and obscene. Thankfully, Scratchy Kwando, the nod man from South Africa, weighed in saying, quote, wow, sounds like an awful and unhealthy decision. How do I get hold of one of those? <laughs> End quote. Now, when people in Nevada on the Vegas Strip were asked their opinion of this monstrous burger, they said things like, perfect midnight snack, does it come with fries, and it's about time you can get an entire cow on a bun. Well, I can't defend the belly of the beast from a health and nutrition perspective, but I think I can sum it up in a simple word for our friends on social media in England. America. That's what it's about. America. Yes, sir. America. And finally, our last story comes from our Something to Smile About, because the staff members at the Baja Grill in Little Rock, Arkansas, surprised Kelly Toller, a workmate, with a little something extra special for his 57th birthday. Kelly had been working as a nighttime host at the Baja Grill for nearly two years, but personal circumstances kept him hitching rides or having to ride a bus to get to work cross town. So his coworkers decided to bless him with a car for his birthday. Heather Baber, general manager of Baja Grill, said it was everyone's idea to present a car to Mr. Toller for his birthday. And as you can see from the video shot at the big reveal, he was incredibly moved and sincerely grateful. It's kind of nice to see people exercising the golden rule with a workmate who was in a less fortunate situation than themselves. So let me close with the words of Kelly Toller in response to this amazing surprise gift of a car. What he said was this, and I quote, you know they say friends are the family you would have had if you could pick your family. Well, I've been very fortunate here, unquote. That, my friend, is the American spirit at work in everyday life, and I hope you enjoyed some great news to wrap things up with. That's just one of the reasons that we read the news so you don't have to. Well, we heard your cries for a town with human-powered amphibious sculpture races. That is just one of the reasons that Ferndale, California is our kind of town this week. Located at a whopping 50 feet above sea level and just outside the majestic redwoods, Ferndale, California developed in relative seclusion from surrounding towns. Its 1,400 residents give it a unique personality and culture that you'll thoroughly enjoy. 
The ornate stores, churches, and elegant homes decorating Ferndale have been called butterfat palaces because they were built on the prosperity of Ferndale's renowned creameries and dairy farms. Ferndale itself owns the smooth nickname Cream City. And you'll sure have a sweet time if you have the foresight to book your stay at the Gingerbread Mansion Inn. It's a beautiful old mansion that's been converted into a delightful B&B, which is worth the visit all on its own. Come November, the Ferndale Fire Department lights the tallest living Christmas tree in America. Guess you could say it's an annual highlight with highlights. And speaking of highlights, every spring, Ferndale takes part in the Kinetic Sculpture Race, where people from all around build bizarre and extravagant human-powered vehicles to traverse land, sand, and water to the finish line in front of Ferndale's firehouse. It's all for glory and making unforgettable memories. Ferndale, California has fostered a beautiful culture and charming quirkiness while still being an enchanting and friendly place to visit. That's why it's our kind of town. I've decided Ferndale might be one of the towns in California where I wouldn't be asked to leave before daylight. I might have to go there. Let me say thanks to Visit Ferndale and the Gingerbread Mansion Inn for their help in putting that wonderful video together. You can learn more about Ferndale through visitferndale.com. You can follow them on Facebook at Visit Ferndale. While you're at it, Visit gingerbread-mansion.com or visit them on Facebook at Gingerbread Mansion Inn so you can book your stay in their gorgeous inn maybe during this wonderful time. All right, Rick, why don't uh, you tell us all about those races we've got coming up, racing our way through the show since we've been talking about races in Ferndale. Well, next up, Will Ford and Matt Lockett reveal how Martin Luther King's dream is being fulfilled. Then, Charlie Daniels speaks out on behalf of our military veterans. Huckabee's back in 60 seconds. Samaritan's Purse is helping thousands of people who are engulfed by the raging floods caused by Hurricane Florence. Samaritan's Purse staff and volunteer teams are tarping roofs and they're cutting up fallen trees. They're shoveling and removing tons of tons of mud from inside homes. Right now, your call or your visit to their website and a financial gift of any amount will help them continue working and proclaiming hope in Jesus' name. Last week, as the disaster loomed, I knew Samaritan's Purse would be on the way to help. And I did something I'm asking you to do. Go online, make a contribution. I know they're gonna be good stewards of what you and I send them. So be sure to give us generously as you can. My next guests have totally different backgrounds. One is the descendant of slaves. The other is a descendant of slave owners. But a chance meeting at the Lincoln Memorial has led these two men to forge an amazing friendship and generate a message of love for both the person next to you, regardless of race, and a love for the unborn of every color and gender. Please welcome the co-authors of this marvelous book called The Dream King, Will Ford and Matt Lockett. Will, great having you guys here. Thank you so much for being here. How did you meet? How did that happen? Well, we had a chance encounter at a prayer meeting on MLK Celebration Day at the Lincoln Memorial. I was led there because of a dream that I had about Martin Luther King. And, uh, and Matt was led there because of a dream that he had yeah. uh, as well. So Now, when did you just bump into each other and start talking, and the next thing you know, you become friends? I mean, that, that sounds a little weird. It wasn't well, quite like that. I didn't even really know why I was there. I was on this journey trying to figure out what God was doing in my life, hmm. and I found myself in this prayer meeting and uh, spent the day praying with a group of people there at the Lincoln Memorial. But that night, I heard a story uh, as Will shared uh, the history of his family, and it, it was really moving, and it really kind of brought things together for me. Yeah. And at that time, Matt, did you know that your ancestors had actually been slave owners? Were you aware of that then, or did it take some time? Not specifically. Yeah. You know, I, for me, our family, we never really knew where we came from, and so we, did, we couldn't get beyond my dad's grandfather. So my dad would make a joke out of it and just say, I guess we're just a bunch of mutts from Kentucky. Right. You know, but we didn't have any idea what our family history was. And, and what about you, Will? Because I, I think one of the fascinating stories is the story, and it involves something we have on our stage. 
this massive black kettle that comes from your family. How old is that kettle? It's about 200 years old. Uh, Colonial Williamsburg looked at it and get, get, put it about 1834. Yeah. And it's been passed down about seven generations in my family. And the reason why it was passed down, it was used for cooking, it was used for washing clothes, but secretly it was used for prayer. See, that's the, when I read that in the book, and that's mm -hmm. why I, I tell people, you gotta read this book, because it is a gut punch of a book. When you say that was used for prayer, I mm -hmm. mean, my first thought is, how in the world is a kettle right. <laughs> used for prayer? Right. Yeah. Well, they had, on, on this particular plantation in Lake Providence, Louisiana, they were beaten for any reason, and, pray, and praying was one of them. So to keep their prayer meeting secret, they would go into a barn late at night to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen. But to make sure it wasn't hurt, they would go in there with that pot. They would use that very pot, and they would take it and invert it. They would turn it upside down, and then prop it up with rocks so it would be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They would then lay flat on the ground or prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with the positives is that those people who were praying didn't think they would see freedom in their time, so they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. And they, they prayed a prayer that God heard. The two of you sit here, yep. white man, black man, their prayers were answered, and you have experienced something that they never, ever could have imagined, Lake Providence, Louisiana. You have freedom. And, and, and the amazing thing is that over, over your family, I mean, this is just a pot that's in our family that they were just using to muffle their voices, but literally in every family, over every person's life, there's a prayer bowl. Revelation 5 and 8 says there are prayer bowls in heaven full of incense, mm -hmm. which are the prayers of the saints. Listen, there's a prayer bowl over every family. There's a prayer bowl over every community. There's a prayer bowl over every nation. God is looking for a new generation mm. to resource the prayer bowls. The reason why I said it is because there was a godly remnant, and not just black Christian slaves, but also white Christian abolitionists who prayed into being the first and the second great awakening. Had it not been for those revivals, slavery would have not ended in this nation. So it was more of a spiritual reason, not a political reason, right. that ultimately slavery ended in the U U.S. is what you're saying. Yeah, transformed hearts, transformed laws, and that's what brought the demise of slavery. Right. Matt, we're in a, a time of incredible tension in this country. And, you know, I, I thought things were getting better and better and better in race relations, and then it seems like over the past 10 years, it's gone the other way. And I don't know that I understand it. What do we do to turn that around? Well, for me, I can only speak of kind of the journey that I've been on, and that was to uh, be obedient to God and, and show up at a prayer meeting when he tells you to go to the <laughs> prayer meeting. You know, I literally met this man in a prayer meeting, and you know, we, we struck up a friendship and a, a partnership that began to develop over time. And so we actually spent the next decade praying together. I got to know him. He wasn't just you know, he wasn't just a concept to me. I, I got to know this man, I love his family, he grew to love my family, and we just became friends and then prayed together for about a decade. Yep. And then something happened after about 10 years of prayer. We actually made this amazing discovery where we found out where my family came from. We actually came in as settlers through Virginia, yeah. but not only that, we found out that the last battle of the American Civil War took place in my family's front yard. Mm -hmm. The house is still there, it's been preserved, it's still riddled in bullet holes, and there's a historical marker in the front yard that says, here Lee fought his last battle. And that led to something else. And so we did more, just stumbled on more research, and what we found out is Matt's family is the family that owned my family, where that kettle pot came from. So think about it, here's my his family. His family yes. Yes. owned right. your family. Yes, so think about it, here's wow. my family, praying for the ending of slavery, underneath this kettle pot, and all the way up at the farmhouse of, you, of the people who used to own them, slavery comes to the end in their front yard. Mm. But then, because he's the God of the past and the future, he connects two people from the same family lines yeah. together to war against injustice in their day and to cry out for awakening in their time. And that's that not being done yeah. together. Unbelievable. <laughs> the story is in this wonderful book, The Dream King. You talk about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s mm -hmm. wonderful influence on your lives, on this country. Uh, he had a dream. Right. You guys are helping to fulfill it. This is an inspiring book, and it's one that I believe all Americans would be blessed to read. The Dream King is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can also visit dreamstreamcompany.com where you can get the book, read their blog, 
ask them to speak in your town. I, I think you probably are saying, I'd like to see that. That's dreamstreamcompany.com. I hope you will get the book and invite them. Well, Charlie Daniels is not only a music legend, he's also a great supporter of the U.S. military. He's performed for our troops worldwide and is dedicated to serving our veterans. He's in downtown Nashville right now at a special event with his veterans aid group, the Journey Home Project. Here to tell us more, please welcome Charlie Daniels. It is an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Governor. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you for sending the crew down here tonight and let people see what we're doing down here. Well, let's talk about what you're doing because it's uh, an amazing tribute that you're paying to the veterans and our military personnel. Why is that so important to you? Well, you know, I'm an old guy. Uh, I go way back. I remember the day Pearl Harbor was bombed. I was five years old, and uh, my formative years from five to ten years old were during the Second World War. And I'm from Wilmington, North Carolina, which uh, is a seaport town. And we had uh, ships sunk just off our coast by German U-boats. So the war was very real to us. And I say this on stage every night, and I mean it with all my heart. Only two things protect America. It's the grace of Almighty God and the United States military. And we want to honor them both. So I honor God as being a Christian, and I honor the military as trying to do what we're doing here tonight. Well, Charlie, every time I've ever seen you in person at the concert, you always pay tribute to the veterans. Tonight's a little different. This isn't a Charlie Daniels concert. This is the very first Patriot Award dinner. So who are you honoring tonight, and, and what happens at the event? Well, this is our first year, and what are the criteria for uh, being a candidate for being honored is somebody who has a heart for the veterans and somebody who has been involved, actively involved in helping veterans for a number of years. So we picked two people tonight that I guess we're close enough here. I'm going to say who it is, is that right? Of course. Uh, okay. Hide your ears, Chris. <laughs> Chris Young, <laughs> standing right over there. <laughs> and Willie Horton, I don't know where Willie is at, but anyway, he, he Chris was kind of surprised. I think he's kind of tickled about it. So. You've got another project that's called the Journey Home Project for U.S. Veterans. What is that about, Charlie? We started the Journey Home Project as a way to help our men and women coming back from their service, from their tour service, to transition back into civilian life, which is not as easy as it sounds. Uh, we try to do whatever they need to get them back on the level with civilian life again. Sometimes it's education, sometimes it's some medical care, sometimes it's something as mundane as a bicycle to ride to work or a room full of furniture or whatever. And we try to help them any kind of way we can to, to get back to normal to live in a civilian life. Charlie, one of the things that amazes me about you, uh, you kind of gave away your age a few minutes ago, said you were born five years before Pearl Harbor, but you're still out there as busy, as active as anybody in show business. How on earth do you keep going at the pace you do? <laughs> you're very kind, thank you. I, I will go as long as it's a good Lord's will for me to be out here. I, uh, I thank God every day of my life I can make a living doing something that I enjoy so much. I love what I do, and I couldn't do, spend my life doing anything that I would enjoy more than what I'm doing right now. And so far, my health's holding up. I'm doing good. I'm enjoying it. I'm having fun. So I'm here for the duration. Well, I hope the duration is going to be long enough for you to come out here to our show at Hendersonville and be our guest and do some music with us, Charlie. We've got to have that happen one of these days soon. We appreciate you. We love that you. That is a priority for me. We're going to do that. We love Charlie Thank Daniels. You. God bless. I don't Thank know you. of anybody that loves this country more than Charlie Daniels and that does more for it. And can't think of anybody who works as hard in the industry. Charlie Daniels, one of those great people. I want you to visit thejourneyhomeproject.org. That's thejourneyhomeproject.org. You can discover how they connect folks just like you and me to veterans organizations that do the most good. Again, journeyhomeproject.org. And keep up with my friend Charlie Daniels. His website is charliedaniels.com. I bet you've got a bunch of his music. I know Rick Roberts does, who's with us tonight. He is our Keith tonight. So, Rick, you know, the devil may have gone down to Georgia, but we're staying right here because there's some great stuff left in our show. Why don't you tell us about it? Coming up, Trey Corley and the Music City Connection will get you on that midnight train to Georgia. 
Then Mike has some positive thoughts on our past and upcoming elections. It's on tonight's wrap, so don't go away. Well, we tape our show in the home of country music, Nashville, Tennessee. But let me let you in on a local secret. Nashville's artists and musicians actually love Motown music, and R&B artists love country music. Now, here's an R&B hit song that was first released as a country song by singer and songwriter Jim Weatherly. It was originally titled Midnight Plane to Houston. Gladys Knight made it a hit. She called it Midnight Train to Georgia. Here to perform it, please welcome Trey Corley and the Music City Connection featuring the four-octave soprano of Miss Angela Prim. The girl can sing, Angela Prim. What a joy. 
Now, for more information on Trey Corley and the Music City Connection, visit their website at themusiccityconnection.com. Okay, Rick Roberts, we're not done with you quite yet because we're not done with the show quite yet. That's right. Coming up, Mike shares an important thing that he and President Barack Obama hold in common. Find out what that is when Huckabee returns. Some people think that if you participate in one political party, you have to be completely polarized to the other. But that's not true. And the points of agreement might surprise you. One example is the subject I want to address tonight on what we call the wrap. Some people might think I disagreed with everything former President Barack Obama ever said or did. But that's simply not true. When he was first elected, I said on television in a statement that you can look up and watch that while I didn't vote for him, I really hoped he would be a successful and good president because I love my country more than my party. And I celebrated that as a kid who grew up in the Jim Crow era in the South, we had elected a president of color. I thought that was something I'd never see in my lifetime. I was genuinely proud that as a country, we didn't vote for or against someone because of race. I publicly praised his devotion to his wife and two daughters. But there's something else on which I agreed with him. President Obama reminded us that elections have consequences. Yes, they do. <laughs> and when elections are over, we need to respect that. Vote your convictions. But when the results are in, accept them. Because, to quote President Obama, elections have consequences. Our thanks to our wonderful group of guests this evening, and I hope you'll join us next week. We've got Senator Mike Rounds, Sean Spicer, the Chewbacca mom, Candace Payne. You've seen her on the internet. She'll be with us. And country great Colin Ray. They'll all be here. Until then, thanks for joining us. Good night, God bless, and have a wonderful weekend.